Good morning, church. I was interviewed for a podcast this week, which happens from time to time, and um, I was asked, uh, uh, what one thing would you want our listeners to take away? And it wasn't um, in any way a Christian podcast. It was a a business entrepreneur's uh, podcast called um, WA Real, and uh, Griff Longley and um, uh, other WA personalities have been on it. And that's an intimidating question, right? Like, all the people listening in, what would you like them to take away? And as we've worshipped today, I feel it's like a word for us as well, and I want to share it right up front. Uh, What I said and what I want to say today as well is that you are loved. You are, you're loved. And that there is nothing that we can do to make us, God love us more and there's nothing we can do to make God love us less that we can't alter the character of God revealed in Christ Jesus to be loved, that that is who God is and that is a reality that is open for us, for all of us. And so any talk of repentance and we're in Lent and this is the third week and this morning's text is actually about repentance, that we don't repent so we are loved. I'll say it again. We don't repent so we are loved. We are loved so we can repent. You can't change God's face towards you. That is always seen in Christ Jesus. That's who God is. That's why we sing the lion is the lamb. There is nothing in God that doesn't look like the lamb of God who is conquered, who is worthy to receive glory. So I want to start right there. And in starting right there, I've done something that I don't often do in preaching. Usually I start with the text, but I deliberately don't want to do that today. I start with the text for several reasons. One is that um, at Sanctuary, reverencing the Holy Bible is really important to us. As a community, we believe that the Holy Scriptures perfectly point us to Jesus, that that's their role, that the words of God witness to the Word of God. That's their role. And so I'll often start a sermon with the text, so you can hear the text in its context, in its fullness. Part of the reason why I do this is that sometimes when you actually preach the text instead of what we think is in the text, people are like, yeah, I didn't get enough Bible today. And what people actually mean is, I didn't hear the Bible how I want to hear it. I heard the Bible as it is. So even just on a psychological level, it's, it's almost providing like a little bit of a buffer before the preacher faces the anger of... You didn't say what I thought it said. You said what is actually there. And so actually reading it up front is a way of going, look, it's not my material. I don't get to make this stuff up. Some preachers will often hold Bibles and maybe they'll get you to hold a Bible as well. And they'll get you to repeat a bunch of things that, and use words that sounds like we're saying that this is reverence and important to us. But it's actually about philosophical movements in the 18th, 19th, 20th century since the Enlightenment. They'll use words like infallible and inerrant, words that historic Christianity hasn't used because orthodox, that is, Christian teaching throughout the century says the point of this is that we don't stop here, is that this points us to Jesus. 
Can you hear the difference? It's really subtle. But if I get everybody to hold their Bible and say, say a bunch of words that you can't actually give a definition to, but they sound like they're really important, and then I'll just refer to a couple of verses out of context, but I'll give you exciting and moving stories that back up things that we already believe that leave us basically unchanged other than our attitudes. And our attitudes do need changing. And I'm not saying that there isn't encouragement to be found there. It's not saying that there isn't a place for that. But at Sanctuary, we want to actually reverence Scripture in such a way that we can trust that God wants to speak something to us, even stuff that we don't want to hear. So this morning, I want to start with a text that you may or may not know and actually name for us that before reading the text, which would give away what it's actually about, I want us to be able to name what we think it's about. Because I think it exists for us and has been laid at our feet in certain contexts in ways that aren't what's going on in terms of this text, but are everything to do with our needs being met with Bible verses in ways that are actually sub-biblical. Not unbiblical. You're using a biblical passage, but it's just sub-biblical. It's not what's actually going on. So out of context, I want to read part of the passage, and I'm going to ask the question, where have you heard it before? What context have you heard it used? What is it usually used to say before we actually see what's going on in the text? Have you heard this before? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Again, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Before we actually start preaching, I want to allow us to actually name how things have maybe been handed in ways that are sub-biblical that actually don't point to Jesus. Because if all scripture is inspired and useful, we need to be asked what it's used for. And apparently, according to 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Scripture is useful for training us in God's healing justice or righteousness. That our opening this up this morning isn't about new, interesting philosophical ideas, nor is it about knowing more, nor is it that we can earn something that isn't already offered to us. That's ridiculous. It's a free gift. It's grace. But is that God wants to catch us up in the work of who God is so the world can see where it's going and see Christ clearly. So, my question is, have you heard this text before? Maybe embroidered on a wall or a poster on the back of a loo? Maybe it's a bumper sticker that you've seen? Or maybe you have a personal story where this text has been brought up in the context of ministry with the people you're next to, leaving no one out because it wouldn't look like the kingdom. And that's what we're witnessing too. I want to give you an opportunity. How have you heard this text used? And what are the implications 
when it has been used. So let me give it to you again, and then I'm going to give you a minute with the people who are next to how you've heard it before. Would it be helpful if people hear it one more time? For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. One minute with your people you're next to. Don't leave anybody out. How have you heard this used, and what has it been used to say? Go for it. Another 20 seconds and we'll bring it back in together. Okay, if we can risk being vulnerable for us before we hear the good news, let's hear how scripture's been distorted to tell maybe less than good news. For people, how have you heard this passage used? Does anybody, and I'll let you off the hook, you can say, somebody near me said, <laughs> and that way you can feel like you don't have to, but does anybody feel comfortable to go, yeah, this is how I've heard it used before? Not all at once. Thanks, Richard. Yeah. Can people identify with that? That the text is used to create a metaphysical distance between us and God. That um, it, it's a way of saying us here, God completely elsewhere. Where holiness is not seen that God is other in who God is, which we see revealed in Jesus, but God is other in that God is missing in action elsewhere. <laughs> like reclining at some celestial pool until comes to make things right later on great let's go with other stuff how have other people heard that passage great great for, for those that missed it to uh, allow it to be heard by the microphone that the ways we think aren't the ways that God thinks and what we expect isn't necessarily what God expects. And that's certainly there in the text. 
And isn't it like some of the importance of asking these questions is to actually see what is there, not how we hear it. Thank you. For others, can they think of particular contexts where they've heard this? Yeah, thanks, Deb. Do other people identify, Deb said, to explain away bad things that have happened? Yeah. Have other people heard this text used that way? Yeah. Almost in a patronising way. Yeah. How would you know God? Right. But again, it's the God that's out there. Yeah. So Bernie is saying that it can be used in a patronising way, hopefully a pastoral way, but it can be used in a, a patronising way to go, who are you to even question? Right? Who, who are you even to ask? We can't understand. Somebody give me an explicit situation. What kind of situations at its worst might this be used in? I heard people talking about examples. Somebody dies in a car accident. I heard somebody else say, you've lost a child. And very well-meaning people using scripture which perfectly points us to Jesus will provide an answer hoping that answers is what we need instead of what we need is actually Jesus. And so this text can be read that God's ways are higher than our ways or as Kat and I recently in a ministry situation heard someone express trying to put together the horror of a family member lost too early, well, maybe God has some greater plan. So for what I seem like a terrible thing, God did a terrible thing for some greater good. It's not often expressed that explicitly, but maybe some horrible thing, whether it's a cyclone or the death of a loved one, maybe God has some bigger plan, that God is a utilitarian who thinks that the ends justify the means, so God will do something horrific for some greater good. And why I want to make that explicit, have other people heard that text used and did you want to add something? Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I was just thinking about the general population and then who is the church. Yeah. So almost that God's ways uh, are so holy that why would I ever think about repenting? Why would I ever think about changing or turning or rocking up in church and actually expressing my need for grace? Because God's ways are so high that God's going to get me. Totally. I'm not sure if you caught that, but... It's, it's been known for us how that's been seized to control populations. Shame and guilt are very effective ways of keeping people passive instead of keeping people seeking first the kingdom. So if you can control somebody through their shame, particularly if people know, as we do, that there are stuff in our life that's a mess, that I do need to change, that this stuff does need to be brought out into the light. But if that can be used in such ways that we think God's ways are higher and I can't go that way. Two psychological things happen at the same time. One, it affirms God's way and then at the same time says, I can't go God's way. 
which is hugely unhelpful. So I'm not sure if we're starting to pick up these different responses, what they all do, whether it's saying that your child was the most perfect flower in the garden and God picked it for himself to be in some other place. And you're like, get your own damn flowers. That was my baby. Like what it does to our picture of God is make God less like the love that we see revealed perfectly in Christ Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. In him, God was pleased to have his fullness dwell. If you have a theology or a Bible passage and you're reading it in such a way that God's nature looks different to the Jesus who welcomes tax collectors, not that Duncan's a tax collector, or a sex worker, or... or, or (laughs) The shame. How Jesus deals with shame is not pretending it's not there, but takes it upon himself and makes it no longer toxic. So people can know that that stuff is in their life. But because we are loved, we can repent. Not now that I've repented, I can get love. But there's so little in our life that often looks like that, even if we've had wonderful parents, which I have. We have experiences, whether it be the school system or whatever else. Humility is a Christian virtue, Dad. Stop. That, that teach us that that's not how the world really works. And there's truth to that. It's not how the world really works, but it's how the kingdom works. And we're, what we're called to is to be a kingdom people. What we're called into is this new way of being, these new thoughts, this new way, and that the word never returns void, that the word of God is like this gracious recycling that goes out and brings back and renews. That the word of God isn't about the assertion that God is in control, but that God has made a covenant. And covenant and control are two different realities. Control sounds more comforting. And what people are looking for in that moment is a way of saying, I need to know that the love is the last word on the last page in the book that is my life. And some of us think that control is the best metaphor to get to that. But as we'll see from this passage from Isaiah, it's not control but covenant. And we're like, what even is a covenant? A covenant is a promise that one party makes in commitment to another party that they won't fail on. That's a different metaphor than control. Please. Yeah. But then the negative experience we may have when somebody else uses it. Yeah. That's right. And and exactly what Terry was saying. Yeah, yeah. And where we're going and where I hope we land together is giving back this passage. And we'll be in Isaiah 55 for those who want to open it up. And we'll put it in context and actually hear how it's a prophetic word to us to actually hear it in ways that are life-giving. So before we read it together, I just want to read the verse just prior to it. I hope today's okay that we're doing more teaching than preaching. There's a place for preaching. But 
but teaching and, and teaching Holy Scripture in ways that it can become authoritative for our life, that we look to Jesus, it's just so important. Isaiah 55, and I'm going to read verse 7, which precedes verse 8 and 9 for those who are mathematically challenged. 8 and 9 is what we've just read. Verse 7 of Isaiah 55 reads, Let the wicked forsake their ways, and the evil person their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and God will have mercy on them, and to our God who freely forgives. 4, verse 8. Do you see the 4? If there's a 4, you need to know what it's there for. Verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. Church, talk to me. What's the connection between 7 and 8? What are God's thoughts and God's ways made explicit in verse 7 that we often don't connect to verse 8? God's thoughts are not wicked and nor are they unrighteous. And the second part of the same passage tells us what the opposite of wickedness and the opposite of unrighteousness are. Mercy and forgiveness. God's ways are mercy and forgiveness. God's thoughts are mercy and forgiveness. This is hard for us to understand. Terry is so right in terms of God's thoughts are greater than ours and that our thinking needs to conform to the thinking of God. But we need to know that the thoughts that God has and the ways that God has, what are they? Mercy and forgiveness. Pastorally in any situation, facing a tragedy and wondering where is God, you need to know that God's ways are higher than our ways. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And God's thoughts and God's ways are compassion and pardon, are mercy and forgiveness. And in any situation, what the prophet is telling us is that we can have the confidence to respond out of our addictive cycles to domination, to self-harm, to others' harm, to something less than God's plan for our world and our own lives and turn because God's forgiveness is more than we can imagine. God's mercy is deeper than we can fathom. And so God's ways aren't our ways. But what the prophet wants to call us into, whether it be God's people in Babylon who have become very comfortable in exile, making a buck on a system that is living in disobedience to what God wants to do through them for the world, whether it be us living in the systems we live in that are set up in disobedience to what God wants to do through us for the world. We have addictions to the world's domination systems, ways of organising our life, even in very polite middle-class ways, that actually run on the blood of others as if the blood of Christ doesn't end the need for all sacrifice. And yet, so much of our life, our economy, 
our neighbourhoods run on the need of victims and blaming, run on the need of let's play the blame game because somehow Jesus and what he has accomplished on the cross isn't enough. And it's subtle and you can use scripture to back it up if you use scripture in such ways that don't point us to Jesus. Please, Terry, yeah. Amen. Amen. And where Terry has gone is where any good sermon should go. Because it is the most easy pocket summation of the life of Christ. We don't get to define what love is, as First John doesn't. This is how we know what love is. Christ gave his life for us. There's the definition of what love is. But what we're pastorally speaking to is that we want easy answers instead of the complex mystery that we're asked to undergo, which is mercy and forgiveness. No, 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 can't I just have a Bible verse with an easy answer? I'm not interested in becoming a person of forgiveness, but I'll take your forgiveness. I'm not interested in becoming a person of mercy, but I'll accept your mercy. I'm not interested in becoming an image and being made into the likeness of love, but I'll accept that God is love because I don't want to go where Jesus went so I can go where he calls me. We are living in exile. We live in our Babylons. And we are addicted not to what God had longed to rescue us from, for the world, but we want to find a religious way of doing a spirituality that fits with everything that is unmerciful, everything which doesn't pardon, everything that shows no forgiveness, and do a religious little bit on the side while we get ahead in a society that is built on cruelness unforgiveness, no mercy, no pardon, no second chances, no way out. And in that context, the prophet speaks this guerrilla poetry that gets under our skin, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and invites us into a new world and a new way of being. Can I read the whole passage so we can hear it together? Isaiah 55, come, it's an invitation, come, as in leave where you are, come, as in movement is required, come, as in you're over there, get in over here, all you who are what? Thirsty. Is this open to everyone? Of course it is. But much like Jesus announcing in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God's healing justice, for you will be filled. What's required is admitting that we are thirsty. Come to the waters. You who have no money, watch this. You who have no money, come and what? Huh. What's the poet doing? Much like listening to Marksman's material, uh, those who like their hip-hop, what the poet is asking of you is to play with metaphors in such a way that they break the way that you think about things and ask you into a new way of seeing. You who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine, 
celebration, milk, nourishment, without any money. What would it mean to actually be caught up in an economy that instead of requiring money, requires us to take the abundance that God has given all of us and what God asks is actually what we've been singing about, surrender. What would it look like for us to surrender and know that there's not enough for everybody's greed, but there's enough for everybody's need if we can hear the invitation to a banquet where the bread doesn't run out if we don't store it up for ourselves in barns against others, but realise that it's given faithfully out of the abundance of who God is because it's the nature of God and it's a reality in the goodness of creation. God as creator of a good creation is right throughout this whole passage. Verse 2, why spend money on what is not bread and your labour on what does not satisfy? Why do we consume and give our lives to production of that which has no meaning and that which brings no satisfaction? I mean, maybe I'm just preaching to myself, but that's so much of my life. I've been caught up in a system where we give our lives to working jobs that we don't like, that don't actually bless, that aren't good for the earth, that aren't good for the poor, that get in the way of my call to follow Jesus. But I'm so busy and so tired and so caught up, I can't even think my way into what the prophet is inviting us into, to come and take part in something else, which Isaiah says will happen, which we as Christians declare has happened. And why we call each other church instead of go to church is because we are the people where this new imagination is actually taking place. Where we can imagine without money, we can come and buy by giving and spending our lives on behalf of others in a new way of being in the world that shows the world another way is possible. When the world says, this is what life is, don't expect mercy. There is no forgiveness. This is just how the world works. There is no kingdom coming. Just enjoy Babylon. Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good and your soul will be delighted on the richness of the fair. Or in some translation, on the fat. We're also like post-carbs and fat's bad. And For the ancients, if you got fat in a meal, it's a good meal. This is something that's going to nourish you. This is something that's good for you. The, the, the excess, the fat, there is an overflow of goodness. Give ear and again, come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. We often hear soul and think it's a certain part of ourselves, maybe located just above the kidneys or at the side of our lungs or, or something. A Jewish sense of soul is us as a whole. We are not bodies with a soul. We are souls that can't be separated from our bodies. Jewish sense of soul is like all of you. Psychologically, physically, emotionally, your soul, all of you. Verse 3. I will make an everlasting what? There's that word again. It is a promise that God says, I'm not getting out of this. I have promised you that this will come to pass. And when disaster strikes and people are seeking meaning, there is so much temptation to seek meaning 
without mercy. God must be cruel for some greater purpose. Nope. Keep going higher. Let your thoughts go higher. Let it go to mercy. Let it go to forgiveness. That's what God is like. An everlasting covenant you. My faithful love promised to David, the king. This is kingdom talk. It's like not just some nice reality in your heart. God is looking to reign over all things that has been promised to David. That what is God's? Everything. God is coming to take. And he takes not with a sword, but through suffering love on a cross. That's the crazy claim of this table. We're hungry and thirsty people come to be made into a different people with a different imagination of not a God that's out there or elsewhere, but God who's other in the sense of God is nothing but mercy, nothing but love. And we're called into the challenge of you are made in the image of love. And yes, the fall runs through every human heart, but so does the offer of redemption. So come. Can you hear what the prophet is saying? Verse 4, see, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader, a commander of the peoples. Surely you will not summon the nations you know not. Surely you will summon the nations you know not. And nations that do not know will hasten to you. You know that whole Abraham promise stuff, Genesis 12? Look at the stars. All this sand. See how numerous this is. You've been called to be a blessing. An election is about vocation. You've been chosen for God's compassion. God's love is not just what saves you, it's what you're saved for. There's no way in other than the way on. And the way on in discipleship is living God's love which has saved us. Kids in Sunday school, they get it right. Jesus loves me. This I know. We make it so much more complicated. The prophet is saying one day that love will flow through all things, be found everywhere and you're called by election through this Abraham and Sarah through this David realized by David's other son not Solomon but Christ Jesus that election is coming to pass being called to be a Christian isn't signing up for a religious trip it's saying I am chosen to allow God's future to become my present reality so people's past can be forgiven in the mercy of God because God's ways are higher than our ways. God's thoughts, can you see this text and the power of this text? Because the holy, because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, who has been endowed with splendor. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he can be found. Call on him while he is near. Isn't God always near? Can't God always be found? Sure. What's the poet doing? Why would marksman in a song put it in the present tense and say, right now, and demand an immediacy? Babylon will put us in the habit of a laziness that puts off hope, particularly if we're comfortable. The prophet's like, now. Seek it now. Pursue it now. It's open now. Get in on it now. Jared, isn't it always open? Of course. But why miss eternity now? 
and take part any longer in Babylon, which makes you so comfortable that you forget that there is an alternative, that life can be different, that we repent because we are loved, not the other way around. Let the wicked say, and wickedness in verse 7, according to Walter Brueggemann, who's many think is the greatest living biblical scholar in the world today, he says the wickedness can be linked to the first verse in the next chapter to make explicit what wickedness is in Babylon. Wickedness is God's people forgetting what they're called to and benefiting off systems like Babylon instead of becoming people of humility and healing righteousness and patience and being an alternative, seeking the peace of the land, but knowing that we're not of this system. We're of the goodness of creation, not the domination system, not all that that is run by sin. So don't you be run by sin and don't benefit from the sin of others. So Isaiah 56 verse 1 reads, This is what the Lord says, maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. The wicked, they don't maintain justice. They have no interest in justice. They say, we've talked too much about justice in church. When are we just going to teach the Bible? And it's like, we're reading the Bible. We can't get around this stuff. This is what the Bible's always talking about. Yeah, but we need to be talking about spiritual things, not social things. Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And if it's not a message which asks for personal, social, ecological repentance, what we're saying is, Satan, you take all this other stuff, but Jesus gets my heart. At sanctuary, we will preach Christ and him crucified and demand of each other in the mercy in the forgiveness of God's promise that we can reimagine all things in Christ and show that grace to one another and call us into deeper things. Wickedness doesn't maintain justice. It doesn't do what's right. It doesn't think salvation is close at hand. And it doesn't think that God's healing justice will soon be revealed. Verse 7, let the wicked forsake their ways, and the evil man his thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord. The Lord will have mercy on him. And our God, he will freely forgive. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Church, can we hear that this Sunday? As the heavens are higher than the earth, so is God's mercy and pardon higher than your ways. And God's grace, God's incredible, unfailing love. Higher than any thoughts we have about love. Just as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish. Get this. So that it yields and seeds for the sower and bread for the eater. So it is that my word goes out from my mouth. The word of God blesses. Mercy, pardon, is always calling us to share in that blessing. We'll read the end of the passage and then we're done. But the invitation this morning is not for us merely to go through the motions 
or to prop up thinking that we're more righteous than others. But to realise, as Mike reminded me, there are certain things that are designed and we don't know what they're there for. I don't know if you're aware that in terms of the glad wrap, there's a little thing in the side that if you push in on both sides, we realise what it's there for is actually to keep the roll in its place. Do people know that? But people have this in their kitchen, yeah? You know what people also have in their imagination? My ways are higher than your ways. This morning, you know what it's actually there for. You know the purpose that it was designed for. So what's in your kitchen? Go home and use it in ways that become a blessing. That's what it's designed for. People know in terms of pots and pans. This hole that's always on the end. People know that's a reality. But if you're cooking, instead of your spoon being left on the table, it's designed in such a way that not only can you hang it up, but as Deb pointed out to me this morning, that whatever is dripping off the pasta sauce that you're making can fall in the bowl and it also not touch what you're cooking on. That's how it's designed. Know that God's ways are higher than our ways. And what it's designed for is mercy. What it's designed for is forgiveness. And if we don't understand that mercy and forgiveness is the higher thoughts and the higher ways of God, we have things sitting in our kitchen that we don't know what they're there for. So many people's faith, they know the goodness of Jesus, but they've never been dared and provoked to relax into God's love enough to find out what mercy and pardon are there for. This morning, know the invitation of the table is to find out what you're designed for. You are made for mercy. What Jesus has done in his life, death, burial, resurrection and ascension has provided a way that God's ways can be your way. That God's thoughts can be your thoughts. And the check for us is, does it look like the love that we were being led to before, where we can hear that love one another, dearly beloved, love one another, for love is of God. Those who've been born of God know God, but those who do not love do not know God because what? God is love. This is how we know God loved us, that he sent his one and only son as an atoning offering and sacrifice for our sins. Know what it's made for. Make sure that we aren't using passages about God's thoughts to justify God being something less than like Jesus. People have seen this before? You know the top of cans? You know, it's designed to be turned round so it can hold a straw. The top of the can is actually designed so that the straw won't bob, but you can hold a straw in it and drink your drink. You're made for mercy. This isn't like a side thing. It's actually the core of what we're called to. And as we read the rest of the passage, I hope you hear the poetry of the prophet 
daring you to reimagine the world as God does and also hear that God is in control isn't the comfort that people need to hear in their tragedy, that God has made a covenant is. And even though the evil one might use things for evil, God will transform it for good. That God does not will all things, but in all things God wills something. And so what has sought to destroy you, God will deliver you through the very thing that if you gave up and didn't realise that God's ways are higher than your ways, it's not God out to get you. It's the enemy. And if you can hang on to God's thoughts being higher than our thoughts and trust that God's covenant means that I don't have to rely that God's in control and cause these horrific things for some greater good, but God has a greater good that he promises with God's own blood and is fulfilling. And that's what we've got to be able to do, not during Lent, but all the time. Call ourselves in to the call of repentance and that repentance is the kind of turning around and the change of mind where we can imagine the world as the prophet does. So as we move to the table, hear the rest of the chapter in its fullness. You might not like it. You might find it too confronting. I sometimes think Babylon is pretty awesome. But if we're a people that are haunted by the grace that actually can see more, all it takes for us is just turn around, is to change, is to open. Or the biblical term for it is repentance. Verse 10, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return empty to me, but it will accomplish what I desired and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Covenant. God will do what God has promised to do. Love is the last word on reality. It's also eternity. It doesn't look like God is in control. Don't worry about control. Trust the deal that God has made. Trust the covenant. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you and the trees and the fields will clap their hand. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree. Instead of the briar, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. Mercy is the last word in reality. Mercy is what we're called to respond to right now, right here. If I've done my work today, you won't hear my thoughts. They're not high enough. Jared's thoughts need to hear God's thoughts. You won't hear any of our ways. You'll hear God's way. And you'll hear that pardon, forgiveness, is what we get in through and what we get in for and what we go on with. And it's who we are to be as a people. Tara is about to invite you around this table, but let me pray for you before we do. Lord, I ask that you would save us from domesticating the danger of your holy Bible. And instead, let it point us to Jesus. Let us hear and experience your mercy in ways that make us so uncomfortable 
we have to actually get caught up in it and live it and realise that the trees will dance, mountains will clap, all of creation has a goodness in it that speaks of who you are and awaken us to the joy that everything experiences because you have made a covenant with us, that love is the last word, that Christ, you have conquered the grave and you call us out of our sin because of your love for us into what it is to be your people. May we respond, Lord, in ways that dangerously leave everything else aside to step into your imagined reality that has become a possibility because of the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. We pray this all in your powerful, majestic and mighty name that is mercy and pardon. Amen. Church, would you pray this with us this morning? Merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word and deed by what we've done and what we've left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbour, the stranger and our enemy as Christ first loved us. We are truly sorry and humbly repent for the sake of your son Jesus. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we might delight in your will and walk in your way to the glory of your name. Amen. For the longest time, I never understood what it meant to, to walk in the ways of Jesus. And it wasn't until putting together two things, one that had been so unfamiliar and one that had been quite familiar. And I don't mean walking in the ways of Jesus as in, uh, I mean, you know, those scriptures, the texts that talk about being in Christ. It's like the embodying the things that we know that we're called to, um, living out those things. It wasn't... Uh, so I grew, grew up, or when I first started going to church, it was in the context of a you know, very Pentecostal, very uh, loud, and you'd not guess it being around here these days, but, you know, that kind of a very expressive um, church. And, and the way that um, we would often have things described, you know, would be like there would be an offer of a response at the end of a service or a sermon or even in the midst of a sermon. The, the preacher would be talking about something and, and then they'd start talking about this, you know, idea of doing something as a faith action or as a prophetic action. You know, they'd be preaching about walking around Jericho and they'd be asking you to do laps around the, you know, walking around your chair or, or you'd be, you know, all these sort of, or like, and they talk about coming up the front sometimes as a, a prophetic action. And I mean, you connect with those things and sometimes, you know, having, um, doing something, it does, it does do something, when, when you make a physical 
movement towards something or to do something. It, it, it does something that, um, that helps you to remember those things that you're talking about, embodying it. And then uh, over the course of a few years and life and ministry changes and I, I went searching for what it would look like for young people and, and then as I stepped into this role, older people, you know, old people in church to, to find a faith that would have endurance and, and last and, um, and started to have conversations with Jared and, and others and read and, and to look into what, like, what would help us as Christians to actually live these things that we talked about believing in. We started to talk about you know, liturgy and, and the practices, the things that we do in church. And we came to a point where we, we started to explore some of these things in church that we do that look like a, a physical representation of something or things that we participate in. See, because God's ways are higher than our ways, but he calls us to walk in his ways. And sometimes we need to start doing the walking before the ways become our ways. And one of the ways that we learn to do that alongside each other as a community is to build into the way that we do church these practices that invite us, no matter how capable we feel on any given Sunday or how ready Invite us to walk in the ways of Jesus. And no more so than this table that we come around every week are we invited into taking steps towards walking in the ways of Jesus. Because as we step forward, we come and participate in something that looks like mercy and forgiveness. Recognizing that we're invited and so is everyone else. We begin to walk in something that looks like what he's calling us into. And so even when we might not remember, or even when we might not feel like it, or when we've got so much going on we just can't figure it out to put it back together, we walk in those ways, in a way that reminds us. As we take steps, we remember why every week we take those steps. As we face the person at the front who hands us, offers us, we remember the times that we've been offered when we felt like we didn't deserve it. Because while we might try to philosophically separate soul and body and spirit and, you know, who we are. The truth is what we embody, our bodies remember in ways that we can't I explain. And so these things help us to remember. They become part of us. And so this morning, as we come around the table, 
You're invited to walk in those ways. A way that looks like mercy and forgiveness. A way that looks like radical inclusion, generosity, a God that would go to the greatest lengths to meet us here. And all we have to do is choose to be part of it. So this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have a little. You who have been here often and you who have just come for the first time. You who have tried to follow Jesus. You who have failed in following Jesus and you who have just decided to follow Jesus today. Come, let nothing keep you from love's feast. Let nothing empty this table of its power. Leave judgment behind and receive mercy. Leave indifference behind and recognize God's family. Leave now, if necessary, go and be a forgiver and run back because it is the Lord who invites us. It is God's will that those who desire Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit would encounter him here. So come. Church, we come as we are, but we are sent out not the same. Sanctuary. He speaks over us a new name to bless and rebuild this city. So we go, broadcast good news for the poor, set the blind see, set free the oppressed, live jubilee. Let it be in his liberating grace that pardons and empowers sinners like us to participate in God's kingdom of mercy. And all God's people said, Amen.